Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 119, Revelation, Keeping the Words of This Book. And in this episode, I would like to look at Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 9, as John is really beginning to wind things down in the book. And we'll notice here in this particular passage, John creating somewhat of a bookend between something he said way back in chapter 1, verse 3, and how he is sort of bringing that idea to a close here at the end of Revelation 22. And so I want to focus in a little bit on that, keeping the words of this book and what I think John means by that. And we'll look a little bit at the word keep as well as what the words prophecy and the spirits of the prophets what that might refer to from John's perspective. And we'll talk obviously a little bit about Jesus and then what that means for his community of followers, which is the church. And so as many of these episodes have done, although I haven't said this every time I do an episode, I'm really not just here to give you information or to tickle your ears or to give you a different way of interpreting revelation than you've ever heard before. Um, The point of Revelation is not informational, it's transformational. And the point isn't to walk away with a new insight. The point is that we would be equipped and empowered and emboldened to keep the words that Jesus has spoken through his servant John. And so that again is really the thrust of the whole book of Revelation, certainly the thrust of the podcast, but at the very least it's the thrust of this episode. And so I want to talk a little bit about what it might mean to faithfully keep the words that John has presented to us in Revelation. So with that in mind, let's just dive right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 22 verses 6 through 9. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Now, that is a really short passage, and I sort of want to begin at the end of it and work our way backwards just a bit. Um, The final paragraph is uh, fascinating. John hears these things. He falls down to worship at the feet of the angel, and No doubt, many times in the biblical narrative, when human beings see angels, they are typically terrified. And John, in some sense, recognizes this divine being in his presence. Um, We're not talking about God here. We're talking about an angel, but these angelic beings, these divine creatures. Um, And it's fascinating because while we would tend to... um, place ourselves in a subservient position to these angels, the angel himself or herself itself responds back to John, you must not do that. I am just a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, 
and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And what's fascinating then is that this angel places John and the prophets and himself and Christians all on the same platform. We are all servants of God. The worship here does not go toward angels. It does not go toward these different beings. It goes toward God. And yet, even the angels, Peter tells us, long to look into the things of salvation. Angels are intrigued by this entire relationship that we have. But here, finally, John is letting us know that angels are not above us here. They see themselves right in line with us as brothers and partners. In fact, that's how John even begins um, the book of Revelation. He says in Revelation 1.9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So, you know, John himself writes as a brother, as a partner here, the angel is saying, look, I am one of you. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And so the angel pulls himself in, John in, the prophets, and then those who keep the words of this book. And that's, of course, the title of this episode is those who keep, you know, keeping the words of this book. And as I said in the introduction, this does form sort of a bookend um, back in chapter one, even before verse nine, as a very introductory word in the book of Revelation, verse three says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy of this book, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And if you remember along the way in the podcast, I expressed to you all that I wanted to receive a blessing myself for reading aloud the words of the prophecy of this book, and I wanted you to receive blessing for hearing it, and then ultimately for us all to keep what is written in it. And so for two episodes in a row, I just read the book of Revelation out loud. The first week I read the first 11 chapters, the second week I read the last 11 chapters, And hopefully you found that encouraging. Um, For some of you, you may never have even listened to the Bible read aloud, but it does have a profound effect um, on us, and I think that that's intentional. But again, John is not just writing for people to gain information. He's interested in chapter 1, verse 3, on keeping what is written in it. And then here in chapter 22, verse 7, he's interested in the same thing. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Um, And so there is that, that relationship, keeping what is written in it, keeping the words of the prophecy of this book. And as I announced and and talked about at length in the introductory episode to the Revelation series, the word prophecy tends in modern conversation to be taken up in most people's minds almost exclusively with predictions of the future. And that is unfortunate in terms of the way the Bible itself is written because the the prophets, um, as John addresses here um, in chapter 22, verse 6, he says, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And so John connects for us the spirits of the prophets with the fact that one of the primary purposes of his message here 
is words of the prophecy of this book. And so it's important for us to go back to the prophets to understand what prophecy is. And I have talked about this in the introductory episode. I think I mentioned this several weeks ago, maybe months now, when we looked at the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's a very important verse, Revelation 19.10. It's one that's worth underlining in your Bibles because today people like to imagine that Revelation is the culmination of predictions of the future that are future yet to us in ways that sometimes don't embody Jesus and who he actually was and what he actually did. In fact, sometimes prophecies or predictions of the future, as many people mistakenly imagine prophecy refers to, are oftentimes wild and fantastical interpretations of political um, ideologies or political circumstances that are happening in a global or geopolitical scale today that have very little to do with the person of Jesus. Or worse, they will be political ideologies which are adopted by certain nation states in the world whose actions, behaviors, and postures toward life contradict some of the very things that Jesus said and did. Um, I can think, number one, about wars and rumors of wars and nations who push their weight around and bully smaller nations into doing what they want. That is absolutely nothing like the spirit of Jesus, um, the testimony of Jesus, which John tells us is the spirit of prophecy, but rather prophecy as it's been defined, um, at least by me, but also by several others, prophecy is simply a call to remain faithful to the terms of the covenant. Um, If you read the prophets, And I acknowledge that, sadly, the prophets are the part of the Bible that I believe are least read faithfully by the majority of Christians. Christians know on Christmas time that there's a passage about a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel from Isaiah chapter 7. And so they quote that on a Christmas card and imagine that because this was a seemingly disconnected promise or prediction of the future from the Lord to King Ahab that somehow all of the things written in the prophets are just predictions of the future. Well, when you actually read the prophets, which again, sadly, so few people do, what you realize they are predominantly is calling the people to return to the terms of the covenant, the covenant being what Moses presented the people with, found in the books of Exodus Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Um, and, and, a, and a great book that I read several years ago, Plowshares and Pruning Hooks by Brent Sandy, is attempting to look at prophetic language and how it works and look at apocalyptic language and how it works. But he talks about prophecy in this way. He says it's just the, the prophets just did exegesis of existence from a divine perspective. And what he means there, exegesis, um, that's like looking into what is culturally there, what is religiously there, and extracting out of it the truth that one finds there. So, for example, 
um, a Bible teacher or a Bible scholar in the church is oftentimes called an exegete of Scripture. Our goal as a pastor or a teacher or a scholar or a biblical theologian or whatever is to look into the passage and extract out of it things that are there that are true. Um, we call it exegesis. Um, it is taking out of what is the form there. And pastors or teachers or leaders are oftentimes criticized when they do what is called isogesis, and that is reading into the passage something that they bring to the passage to try to make the passage say what the interpreter wants it to say. And, you know, th this happens a lot, whether you know these words or not, you, you know, you might be in a small group Bible study and somebody who means incredibly well will pick up their Bible and they'll read a passage and they'll say, well, what this means to me is, and they'll give some interpretation, right? That is just sort of made up out of their own mind. And, and you know, lots of people do not mean ill by that, that, you know, it's kind of an awkward situation, when then you and the group who may know a little bit more about the Bible are trying to direct them and help them understand it. But these things are happening all the time. We are attempting to take out of that passage what is there and applying it to our situation, even if it doesn't always fit our situation. And this, again, is why historical context is so important, because we are trying to understand everything that's happening in that passage and pull out of it the truth. And so a prophet at the time of the prophets, speaking to Israel, speaking to the kings, looking at the culture, looking at the surrounding nations, looking at the struggles that Israel is in with Assyria or Babylon or so on. The prophets, they surveyed the cultural scene um, as well as Israel's religious scene or their their scene of their worship centering around the temple, and they exegeted what they saw according to how well it blended or didn't blend with the terms of their covenant. So the reason why I think the prophets aren't that well known is because the prophets spend the majority of their time hearkening back to the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason why I think so few Christians understand the prophets is because they don't hear those references and echoes in what is written because so few people actually know what the book of Deuteronomy says. But believe it or not, if you want to crash course in understanding biblical prophecy, you would really want to start with the book of Deuteronomy, which is not predictions of the future. It's an explanation of the character of the Lord, what he's done to redeem his people, and then what it would look like to faithfully respond to the Lord in the way you live out your social and economic and worshipful life as a newly formed nation, as a newly formed group of people, in contrast, of course, to the way life was structured socially, economically, and spiritually in a place like Egypt, which the Lord just pulled his people out of. So knowing all of that, gives us a wealth of knowledge to exegete out of the passage and then to apply to a new situation. And you don't have to read long in Revelation, I'm sorry, in the Old Testament to see Israel falling right into the same um, struggles, idolatries, sins, injustices that were committed against them in Egypt they ended up doing the same exact things against some of the poor in their own land. And the Lord, of course, has to eventually rebuke Israel for the same thing. And that's where the prophets come in. They are the ones who point out 
what, um, you know, calls for justice or a need to be compassionate or caring for widows and orphans like the Lord cares for them or treating other people fairly and equitably or loving one's neighbor as themselves. Wherever the prophet saw a break culturally or religiously in their culture, they spoke to it. And that's what they were. They were exegetes of existence from a divine perspective. They were the voice of the Lord speaking into a situation, telling people who thought their behaviors were perfectly fine how they might have actually been contradicting um, the ways of the Lord. That's basically what happens. And so in the New Testament, which is where we are in Revelation, obviously, the terms of the covenant now are deeply rooted in Jesus that Jesus is the terms of our covenant. He's the way we have relationship with God and enter into this permanent covenantal relationship with the Lord. Jesus's self-sacrificial witness unto death is the way we've been restored, is the way the entire creation has been restored back to God. It's the way people are now restored and reconciled with one another. It's the way we are reconciled within ourselves, and it's ultimately the way the entire creation will have shalom reigning over it once again, which again is how the book of Revelation paints the picture. So, faithfulness to the terms of this covenant, particularly for the church, is to embody as a community, as a church, what Jesus embodied as an individual and in the same ways that Jesus embodied them. So as my friend Tim Gombas says, God is shaping communities into the image of Jesus Christ, growing and nurturing them into what Jesus Christ would look like on earth if his cruciform life took community form. Let me say that again. God is shaping communities into the image of Jesus Christ, growing and nurturing them into what Jesus Christ would look like on earth if his cruciform life took community form. This is what John is bookending for us in the book of Revelation. The angel expresses that he is on the same footing as John, his brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. John's exhortation at the beginning is that a blessing would be received on those who keep the words of this book, who keep the words written in Revelation. And we know based on the fact that John connects the words of the prophecy of this book and keeping the words of this book that we are dealing with what Revelation outlines as the terms of the covenant. The churches and the Christians in those churches have been constantly exhorted to conquer, to overcome, to be faithful witnesses to the Lamb. For two chapters we read, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. And then in chapter 5, we are introduced to the, for the first time, what it means to conquer. And the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And when John turns to see this lion, he sees a slain lamb. So Jesus' faithful witness unto the point of death is how he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And faithful witness to Jesus 
is determined based upon how closely his followers embody the same characteristics that Jesus embodied. Or as Gombas puts it, what Jesus would look like on earth if his cruciform life took community form. That's what the church is supposed to be. And so here John is saying, look, I've written you this book. I have written the book of Revelation so that those who hear it will keep the words of this book. We'll keep them. We will uphold them. We will protect them. We will preserve them. We will embody them. And we will maintain in our own lives what John calls patient endurance. He identifies himself in chapter 1 as the brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. And John tells us, that his patient endurance, his willingness to embody in his own life the same things Jesus embodied is in fact why John is on the island of Patmos in the first place. He says he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Well, here's John, right? John is saying, if I testify to Jesus, if I speak with my mouth the truth about who Jesus was and what Jesus did, and I am treated by people who don't want to hear that the same way Jesus was treated when he testified to the truth, then I am being faithful to that truth. Because the same thing that happened to Jesus is happening to us. John's writing this to the churches, some of which are receiving immense, Im, immense persecution as a result of their testimony. And John exhorts them to, continually, uh, to continue to um, maintain their strength in their witness. He has to write to others who are willing to back off on their faithful witness for fear of persecution. He reminds them, Jesus did not do that. He will meet you in your difficulty and encourage you with the way to work through it. And so again, to the church in Philadelphia, in Revelation 3, John says, because you have kept my word, well, this is Jesus speaking, right, through the Spirit, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Well, this sounds eerily similar to our passage in Revelation 22, verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So in Revelation 3, the exhortation to the church in Philadelphia is, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, because you have faithfully and patiently endured through the difficulty, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, I know how I was taught to interpret this passage. I was taught to interpret when the Lord keeps you from the hour of trial, that means he's going to remove you from the hour of trial. A difficult situation is coming on the world and the Lord, because he's kind, is going to remove you from this. Well, that can't be the meaning of the word keep because in the same verse, John tells us, or through Jesus rather, you know, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, you wouldn't insert remove in that use of the word kept, like because you have removed my word about patient endurance, right? I will remove you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. It doesn't even make sense. The Lord keeping people from the hour of trial is not removing them. It's preserving them, guarding them 
protecting them, upholding them in the middle of their struggle. So the end of the book of Jude, we, are, we read this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Wow, now that is a benediction to end a letter. Um, and occasionally I read this as a benediction to end our worship gathering because what an incredible way to send people out. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. How does the Lord keep you from stumbling? He enters into the struggle with you. He reminds you and reminds me that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And he steps into that with us and shows us that he has now authority and rule over those things exhorting us not to get caught up in the ways of this world that are driven by the God of this world, but rather to embody the self-sacrificial, compassionate, vulnerable, suffering posture of Jesus. And Paul exhorts us numerous times that when we, as the followers of the Lamb, do this individually and communally, the powerful presence of Jesus meets us there and keeps us. He sustains us. He encourages us. He strengthens us. He empowers us. And he equips us with his power and strength to do what he's calling us to do. This is why the most famous of the blessings, probably from the Old Testament, from Numbers chapter 6, says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What's being encouraged, what's being promised in this blessing is that the Lord's gaze, the Lord's attention, the Lord's presence, the Lord's grace is going to be turned toward you. Why? To bless you and keep you. He's going to direct his attention on you. That is what you are hoping will be the case in your life. And so John is saying, for those who embody the reality of Jesus, those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book, keep the words of, of the call to remain faithful to the terms of the covenant, revelation is dripping with these terms. Revelation is dripping with the reality that it is people who stand in opposition to the Lord, not Lord to the people. Jesus has opened himself up fully and has welcomed any who will choose to come. Revelation will end with a glorious invitation from the bride, from Jesus, from the spirit who just invite any and all who want to come, to come. But Jesus's life, his teaching, his acknowledgement that the deepest and darkest places of human sin are in the hearts of people, not in the external actions of somebody else. That's a teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. To recognize that people are aware of the log that is in their own eye, not the speck that is in somebody else's. That is a teaching of Jesus. 
to recognize that the way revelation defines conquering or overcoming or being victorious comes through the form of suffering, defeat, foolishness, and weakness. The terms of our covenant is that the Lord pours out resurrection life and resurrection power into lives and into communities that embody the weak, foolish, yet compassionate, self-sacrificial, humble, servant-like love of Jesus. This is what the church is exhorted to be and do. This is the posture of the communities that keep the words of the prophecy of this book. Remember, Revelation is not to tickle our ears with a new and exciting way to think about the end times. It's not for us to sit in a Bible study with our notebooks and take diligent notes so that we can answer questions of objectors who want to argue that Revelation teaches something that it doesn't. No, Revelation is written to reshape our imaginations around the person of Jesus. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And John is here to explain to us what to real Christians in the real world it would look like to really and truly embody the character of Christ. Let me read Gombus's words one more time because I love them. And this is in a book that he recently published called Power in Weakness. And I just love it. He says, God is shaping communities into the image of Jesus Christ, growing and nurturing them into what Jesus Christ would look like on earth if his cruciform life took community form. That is what it looks like to be the church, the community, a place where we give up desires in order to meet the needs and, and, and desires of somebody else, a place where we take into consideration a dissenting opinion or a dissenting view to truly seek to understand where someone else is coming from and then to show them the way we understand the truth to be carried out in Jesus. This is not something that is easy to do, but this is the bulk of what the New Testament is about. And it is about Christians keeping these words. It is about us being willing to lay down our own lives and our own wishes. And it is, it is for Christians to reject the strong pull and the strong temptation toward power or exercising authority or rule in this world the way, Jesus says, the Gentiles do. They exercise authority and they lord it over other people. It shall not be so among you. The beast-like characteristics that John paints in graphic terms for us is not to be the picture of the systems and the structures that grip the hearts of Christians. The image that is intended to grip the hearts of Christians is the image of a slaughtered lamb. And yes, I am well aware of the fact, as was Paul, that it looks foolish and weak to think about God performing his work in the world through a Roman cross. It makes zero sense. 
It's not the way to, quote unquote, get things done. It's not the way that seems to make sense to us. It's not the clever ways that we navigate our world and we situate ourselves and posture ourselves in such a way that we always make sure we are going to get what's best and whatever leftovers we have, somebody else can get. That's not the way Jesus postures himself. That is not the way his church is supposed to posture itself. Instead, we model our community life off of the person of Jesus. We treat those not part of our gathering the way Jesus treated tax collectors and sinners. We embrace them. We listen to them. We love them. We care for them. We reach out and heal them. We let them know we care about them. Our world is doing its own thing. And we've spent several chapters, right, looking through Revelation at some of the unfolding of that. And John has attempted to capture for us ideologies, belief systems, and such. And I've done whatever I can do to attempt to explain the ways that very, you know, even simply in our own country, ideologies that grip the hearts of people who are looking for swift and quick judgment on their enemies, This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him, pleading with the Father to forgive them while they were putting him to death on the cross. And I think for churches in our culture right now to be faithful witnesses to Jesus and to truly embody the cruciform life that Jesus embodied, but to do it as a community would be number one for us to stop feeling so exasperated and so shocked that our culture um, doesn't necessarily love what we do or, or who we are trying to become um, any more than they loved or just willingly embraced Jesus and all that he did, but rather to say, how can we serve them? How can we set aside our own agendas, which I'm sorry to have to say this, but it, it just is true, and that is that even in Christian churches, we have agendas, Um, We want our numbers to grow. We want people to give tithes. We want to do the kind of ministries that we want to do. And oftentimes we don't like to think that some of our motives aren't always the purest and that some of our reasons for doing X, Y, and Z aren't always in line with Jesus. So Jesus starts with his people and says, you first are the one who needs to recognize that sometimes you have a log in your own eye and you need to allow me to remove it before you worry about these tiny, minuscule issues that you think you can see so clearly in the eyes of other people. No, trust me, guys. You've got more than enough to see in yourselves if you would be willing to place yourselves in the same position as everybody else. But I'll be honest with you. I'm in a pastoral role right now. I I have been in other churches and I don't often see that embodied on the whole. I don't often see in churches a spirit that says, first, let's look at the log in our own eyes before we worry about the specks in other people's eyes. You get on social media or you watch the news and you are fed constantly the idea that the real problem people in this world are those on the other side of the political divide. I mean, that is a, a system of this world. That is a beastly 
oriented mindset that is being driven by the God of this world and the principalities and rulers in the heavenly places. That is not a Jesus-saturated kingdom of God way of looking at the world. It's very natural and very normal, but this again is why Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not creating a kingdom that is built on worldly ways of getting things done. And no, I don't just bless churches who do things in worldly ways just because they are churches. He doesn't do that. He never gives us a green light to do that. Instead, what Jesus says is, I want you to pursue godly ends and I want you to do it in godly ways. And you want to know how Jesus defines godly? Self-sacrificial, humble, compassionate, power under, kingdom of the cross kind of service. That's how he does it. That's who he is. And that's entirely what the book of Revelation has attempted to get across to us. And if we miss this, we will miss the entirety of what the Christian faith is actually all about, which I think personally is sad, but it's also what I think is the brilliance of the book of Revelation is it perfectly encapsulates all of the ideology of what it means to be a kingdom of God citizen. And again, it paints for us in graphic terms what from God's perspective it really looks like when we embody or adopt the ways of Rome in order to accomplish God's purposes. He calls it beast-like, and there could not be a better description for that. As followers of the Lamb, we are to be Lamb-like. And yes, what that means is that the Lord does intend to send us out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He knows that those in our culture or in our world may in fact operate as wolves. He knows that. He does not then sanction us or, or grant us the permission to be sent out as wolves in the midst of wolves. He does not give us the option to quote unquote, keep the words of his book by just blasting them at the opposition and then stand back and wait for them to be judged for not listening to us. That would be like Jesus sending us out as wolves in the midst of wolves, waiting to bite somebody's head off or waiting to snap at somebody or sneaking behind a bush and waiting to pounce when someone least suspects it. That's not the posture of a Christian. Rather, the posture of a Christian is one of invitation. It's one of self-sacrifice. It's one of being willing to look first at the flaws and, and brokenness in oneself. And then as we are softened in our understanding of Jesus's grace toward us, are able to give and extend grace to others with uh, greater intensity and to a larger measure. And then to continue to speak Jesus's words of love and compassion to the world um, the way he taught us to. And so that's, that's really all the time I have. I, I talked a little bit longer today than I thought I might, but that's okay. It's fun to just talk with you and share with you um, things that, that I think the Spirit's bringing to my mind as, as I do these episodes. And so um, I will talk to you next week with another episode. I've got one more by the book episode that I've recorded, and then I'll share that with you here in a, in a week or two as well as we continue to work our way toward the end of the book of Revelation. So thanks so much for tuning in. 
Have a great week.